Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. On this episode, we had a really good conversation with Mike uh, Keelan, the CEO, and Will Burt, the senior marine chemist with uh, Planetary Technologies. This is part of a series that we're having with interesting upcoming emerging companies that have the potential of being game changers. And and certainly um, it's uh, as a result of all the uh, podcasts we did with the various accelerators and incubators across the region. There's lots of interesting things going on, uh, David, as you know. This one could potentially be significant in every way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Planetary Technologies is developing, trying to develop a technology to use the oceans to store more carbon, uh, as I understand it. Don, you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they want to get to a point where they're pulling potentially a billion tons worth of carbon out of the atmosphere uh, every year uh, and using the oceans to do that. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, this is one of those ideas that if they're successful, they will be a multi, multi-billion dollar company uh, headquartered right here in Halifax. So very, very, very exciting. And it's not just a theoretical idea. They've won a million dollar X prize already, and they're on, the, they're on, a, on a short list for a much larger prize of $50 million dollars uh, they've got many collaborator, collaborators. They've already raised $10 million. So uh, I think this is a very, very interesting one that we all need to keep an eye on. And it's a big idea. And, you know, uh, in our conversation, uh, Will did a good job of uh, explaining in layman terms how this process works because it's basically chemistry. <laughs> Not one of my best subjects going through school. Maybe it might be one of yours, but uh, he did a really good job explaining how they would basically use a process of developing a, a, an anti-asset material that could be uh, used in the ocean to get carbon dissolved and then allow the oceans to capture more carbon. Because as he explained it, which I thought was quite inter- interesting, is that there's an equilibrium between the ocean and the atmosphere. And the ocean is a big, uh, a big uh, place for carbon to reside and uh, it will rebalance itself if you dissolve some of the carbon and have it replaced by carbon that's already in the air. And this is a big idea. There's lots of there's lots of side parts of this story that I find really fascinating. Um, you know, they, they're going to use mine tailings as a one way of getting this uh, anti-asset uh, material. Uh, they're going to create uh, some uh, side products of that, including metals that could be used for battery production and and also uh, renewable hydrogen uh, energy uh, uh, which is significant too so there's a there's many sides to this story yeah it got me thinking about small modular reactors smrs um, is going to take an, a tremendous amount of electricity in this process uh, as he indicates in our discussion and we didn't get into that but one of the potential uses for nuclear energy moving forward is to provide the clean energy to do some of these mega geoengineering type projects. So, because cost is a big issue here too, Don, right? Because even though this is a very, very interesting project, you can imagine it must be pretty costly based on, based on what they're proposing to do. So assessing that cost, trying to find ways to do that in a, in a more efficient way, uh, I think probably is something they have to look at moving forward because there will be alternative technologies and there will be 
other people trying to get into the space. So a very, very exciting company. I'm sure the, uh, I'm sure the listeners will find this very interesting. Yes. And I, you know, I think the, uh, the other th- interesting thing about this story is, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's going to happen pretty soon. They've got three demonstration projects, um, to test and prove their technology. Um, they will be making revenue, uh, from those uh, demonstration projects, one in the Bedford Basin, by the way, um, uh, and uh, and if those projects, uh, demonstration projects, prove their technology, then they're off to the races. And uh, pretty sure that they'll they'll attract a lot of capital if they can uh, prove their their processes. Absolutely, and I asked him offline why they're in Halifax, and he specifically said. The main reason was Innovacorp. There's a gentleman over there that was trying to woo him into Halifax and in making the introductions to the various people in the ecosystem. So if this company does take off and is successful, uh, I hope the fingerprints of Innovacorp are, are well identified because you know with uh, they have had uh, a big role in a number of the very successful companies that have emerged out of Nova Scotia recently, and we've been hearing about that. So Innovacorp seems to be really... Uh, um, you know, uh, paying for itself uh, in terms of its support for these exciting companies. Yes, that's right. And so, you know, it's one of the reasons that we wanted to uh, highlight some of the companies that these uh, incubators are, are are bringing along because they're really not uh, well um, understood by the general public. And especially when you get into the technology, kind of technologies that Planetary is talking about. As I said, it's chemistry and uh Chemistry is going to be important to uh, dealing with climate change, and uh, you know we might have a we might have a really big part of that uh, solution in our backyard, which is really exciting. And I think people will really uh, learn a lot about this uh, this process. And let's listen to our discussion with Will and Mike. We are pleased to be joined on this episode of the Insights Podcast by Mike Kellen, the CEO, and Will Burt, the senior marine chemist from with uh, Planetary Technologies. Welcome to the both of you to our podcast. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Don. We are certain that very few of our listeners have heard about Planetary Technologies, but it is a Nova Scotia company that could have a major impact on climate change through your innovative carbon capture technology. Let's begin by asking each of you how Planetary Technology started and how each of you became involved in the company. Let's start with you, Mike. Tell us a little bit about the history of the company, if you would. Sure. Um, the company was founded uh, by myself and uh, my co-founder, uh, Brock, originally. And we uh, were looking to do something really highly impactful in climate. And we were looking for something that fit a bunch of different criteria, um, something that was, I would say, underappreciated in climate. It didn't have billions of dollars of investment already behind it uh, because of obviously with a startup, we wanted to be able to make an impact and, and find a space. Um, we were looking for something that was directly applicable to climate, not something that was peripherally uh, applicable. And we wanted something that benefited from entrepreneurship. So it needed to have a big market and a big potential um, commercial outcome, as well as being sort of good for the world. And we met up with uh, Dr. Greg Rao, who had been working on this process for the last 13 years at the time, now now 15 or 16 years. And he pitched us on you know jumping in and, and working on his research. And uh, we thought it was great. It, it really fit all of our criteria. You know, the oceans were highly underappreciated in terms of their ability to make an impact on climate. 
even though they are the largest store of carbon on the Earth's surface. Uh, the technology produced valuable commodities within the context of renewable fuels, and the process was ready to to go to market. And so uh, we jumped in with, with Greg about uh, two and a half years ago and founded the company. And uh, it's been a bit of a rocket ship ever since. We've been, you know, sort of growing and, and building up this technology and moving forward as quickly as we can from there. Will, why don't you tell us your... Yep. Your uh, your path to the company and how you how you joined the company? Yeah, sure. I, I actually started out uh, at Dalhousie University as an oceanography uh, PhD student. After finishing that, I went on to become a professor of oceanography uh, at the University of Alaska. And uh, a friend of mine here in Halifax contacted me to say that uh, she was working with this new company who was looking for. An ocean chemist to work on their on their ocean-based research. Uh, that person is Ruth Musgrave, a close collaborator collaborator of ours at Dalhousie. And um, didn't take long for me to do some background reading on Greg's research and the company's sort of vision. And you know, I, I, nothing. I mean, as there's a reason why we're here today. The reason that this company and what we're doing is so exciting uh, that. You know, I took a major career shift uh, out of academics and into this new world. And, um, you know, it's been a wild ride. I've only been here for about six months now, and um, it's just phenomenal. So that's been my journey into um, into planetary. And, and Mike, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how the work has been funded to date, and maybe who your major funders have been to get you to this point in time. Absolutely, Don. We founded the uh, company with a lot of support from a lot of different sectors, and we've uh, continued to enjoy that support as, as the company's developed and, and the technology's developed. And, and really, one of our major funders is Innovacor out of uh, Nova Scotia. You know, this is a, uh, you know, they've been a, an in absolutely incredible supporter of us and, and a funder from the venture capital side of things. We've also had uh, good support from uh, folks who are interested in ensuring that we have some solutions to the climate crisis. That includes uh, people like Apollo Ventures, uh, sorry, Apollo Projects uh, Ventures, which is uh, out of San Francisco, and Raman Ventures out of, uh, out of Toronto, uh, and Thistledown uh, Foundation out of Ottawa. So those have been great sort of private sector funders of our work and our company. We've also had uh, considerable support from the Canadian federal government through things like NSERC grants and uh, emissions reductions fund grants. And we've had support from the British government as well through the uh, BEIS programs. And so we, we've had a lot of support from different areas, which we're, we're pretty grateful from uh, for all that support. And um, uh, it's enabled us to, to really progress the technology. Can you give us an idea of how much has been invested in this, um, in your company to date? Yeah, I think when you count everything up, so you sort of like go out there and, you know, count the venture capital that we've we've raised as well as the um, grants that we've raised for ourselves, as well as the grants that we've raised for our collaborators at Dow and, and other places, uh, we've probably raised about $10 million so far in Canadian dollars. Hmm. That's impressive. Um, Mike, we hear you have a lot of partners in the development of this carbon removal process. Can you give us a sense of who you've been working with on this? Absolutely. Yeah, partnership is absolutely critical to what we do because 
we're trying to move very quickly. We're trying to match our pace to the pace of the climate crisis. Um, at the same time, what we're doing is new. And so we're trying to do things very safely uh, and in a well-monitored way. And what that means to us is that collaborations and partnerships being open uh, out there in the world, but also working with organizations who are able to help us to ensure that safety is, is uh, respected uh, is, is really, really important. So key collaborators for us, Dalhousie University, huge collaborator. We've got a multi-million dollar project on the go with Dalhousie where we're working on safety, effectiveness, efficiency of this process. Um, we have uh, other university partners at Plymouth Marine Lab in the UK, uh, as well as at the University of Miami, where we're looking at the effect of this kind of process on corals, um, as well as the effectiveness of the process. And then on the other side of the business within uh, where we work on uh, our mining business, uh, we're working with uh, groups like SGS um, and D uh, Sustainable Technologies, who bring just this incredible wealth of experience and expertise to bear on uh, the problems that we're trying to solve. We've done a number of uh, podcasts with accelerators and incubators across Atlantic Canada, and your company has come up on a number of occasions as one to watch. Uh, most recently, uh, uh, with a podcast with Peter Moreira of Entrevestor, who tracks more than 700 tech, uh, tech startups in the regions. So, you know, high praise, obviously. Recently, uh, Planetary Technologies won a million-dollar X Prize from the Elon Musk Foundation. Uh, maybe you could tell us about the significance of being only one of 15 winners. I guess this is globally, as chosen by a, pre a prestigious, uh, prestigious uh, panel of climate experts uh, for this prize. Yeah, this was an incredible milestone for the company, and the X Prize is. A hugely ambitious prize. So what we won was a million dollars out of a total hundred million dollar pot. Um, the grand prize will be awarded in 2025 Earth Day. And the bar for that grand prize is going to keep uh, going up and up. So the, the grand prize is 50 million. Um, and then the run up prize is 20 million. Uh, and then third is is 10 million. So it's, it's a huge prize uh, for this kind of thing. The largest incentive prize. So essentially, incentive to to solve a global problem uh, that that has ever existed so this is just a huge huge uh, uh, thing there's a 1100 teams registered for this worldwide uh, to be chosen as one of the 15 most promising teams uh, most likely to win the grand prize uh, is incredible and it was it was tough like it was not an easy thing for us to do uh, you know I, I I always make the joke that some of our people, um, you know, especially our, our senior metallurgist, um, worked two or three months within the month of January. And uh, in order to get us to the point where we had all this data together, because what they were asking for was not just our idea, but they were asking for everything, our techno-economics, um, the uh, potential impacts, uh, the, um, you know, full life cycle analysis of the technology. And the people who reviewed this were a panel of people who came from industry and academia, um, from um, the venture community uh, all over, and brought a huge amount of diligence, I think, to reviewing these solutions. So it was a huge honor for us. Uh, I think it's a recognition of our ability to scale this up and the potential that this has in uh, solving for uh, one of the hardest problems in the carbon uh, crisis in the carbon solution, which is actually removing carbon directly from the air. 
So I think we've now uh, got our listeners very interested to find out what this technology actually is. You've developed this unique ocean-based carbon removal technology. Will, can you provide us a layman's explanation of how this technology works? Yeah, I'd love to. So as Mike mentioned earlier, the ocean is an immense carbon reservoir, uh, the largest largest by far that's in contact with our atmosphere. And to put that into perspective, there's roughly about 50 times more carbon in the ocean than there is in the atmosphere. And and to put that into perspective, picture sort of a not quite filled milk jug of of CO2. And that's that's your atmosphere. And compare that to a full bathtub of of water. And that's your that's your ocean. So the basic premise of what we're trying to do here is to pour out a small amount from that milk jug into that bathtub. And, you know, by doing that, you're going to reduce the amount of volume in that, uh, in that atmosphere, in that, in that milk jug by a, you know, noticeable amount. But what you're going to see in terms of the volume of the bathtub is, is really no measurable change at all, or very, very little change. And so that's why the ocean is sort of the way to go. And I think that's why this company exists. So how does that how does that work? The the easiest way to describe it is, and I'll kind of start at the end and work backwards. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the ocean based uh, carbon removal first. So what we're going to do here is we're going to add a mild antacid to the ocean, and really what that antacid is going to do is combine with the CO two, the carbon dioxide dissolved in the oceans, and it's going to convert that carbon dioxide into something called a bicarbonate ion. And, you know, the same way that sugar dissolves in your coffee, uh, a bicarbonate ion is a dissolved ion in your, in your ocean, or uh, you can't see it. It's just part of the chemistry of the ocean. Like that dissolved sugar is now part of the chemistry of your coffee. And, and so by doing that, you're going to reduce the amount of dissolved uh, CO2 gas in the ocean because you've converted it into, into that bicarbonate. So what you've done now is you've created a deficit of of carbon dioxide in the ocean and the atmosphere and ocean are are typically in equilibrium with each other. The gas is transferred back and forth depending on um, sort of a concentration gradient. And so now you've reduced that amount of CO2 in the ocean and the atmosphere will fill that void and the CO2 will literally transfer from the atmosphere into the ocean. And that, of course, is is the carbon removal process. So, so you're taking CO2 from the atmosphere and, and it's dissolving into the oceans to fill that void. So that's the ocean-based carbon removal, you know, adding antacid to the ocean in order to induce uh, CO2 uptake. Now, the big challenge with that is that any successful carbon removal technology needs to scale massively. And we'll get into that a little bit later, I guess. But you know, what that means is that the antacid we intend to use for this process needs to be produced at immense scales, you know, billions of tons of the stuff. Um, and, and even more importantly than that, the production of that antacid needs to be done in a way that doesn't produce a lot of carbon dioxide, it needs to be done in a low carbon intensity way. So that's a, that's a huge challenge. And, and so the first sort of aspect of our technology is that production process producing an antacid in a way that utilizes renewable energy and sort of is a, is a, a low net carbon platform, I suppose. That sort of is the company, you know, in, 
the process in a nutshell, you've got a, a, a low carbon intensity process of generating an antacid. And then you've got the delivery of that antacid into the ocean to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So just, just a quick follow-up. So it's like a great big bottle of uh, Pepto-Bismol or maybe Zantac. <laughs> you, you talk about antacid. I'm just sort of drawing the parallel there. Thank you for that summary. And we will get into scale as we move on here. So Don? David, it's it's, it's more Rolaids, actually. More Rolaids. <laughs> uh, well, just a, a, another question for you, I guess. Uh, can you provide our listeners with the impact your technology might have on reducing carbon globally on an annual basis? Uh, and, and maybe what would removing billions of tons of uh, carbon equate to in practical terms? You know, this is the problem with, I think, the whole debate about carbon is that people don't know what the impact is on everyday life. So if you could help us out on that question, that would be great. Yeah, I'd love to try. It, as you <laughs> said, it is really challenging. I mean, I think the perhaps the best way to think about this uh, when, when it comes to you know billions of carbon, uh, billions of tons of carbon, pardon me, is, is in relation to the IPCC report. So these reports that come out regularly and sort of grade us on our progress uh, in fighting climate change and tell us what we're in store for using these climate models as things move forward. And you know, we've received a number of these reports now over the last couple of decades. And the latest one came out this year, and it basically said that carbon redu uh, redu emissions reduction, which is what these reports typically discuss, are not good enough anymore. Uh, they make a very clear statement that we need to be, we certainly need to be reducing our emissions and need to be doing a better job of that. But we also need to be taking CO2 out of the, directly out of the atmosphere. And we need to be doing that on a scale of about 10 gigatons per year by 2050. And um, to, to put that into practical terms, that amount of scale is about two times or more, more than two times the amount of oil we produce globally each year. So, uh, you know, the, the way to think about what billions of tons of carbon means is that, you know, the IPCC report tells us that without that level of scale, without those billions of tons, we will not meet the... Uh, the needs to, to try and mitigate against the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And some of these impacts we're already seeing, and we all know it's, it's only going to get worse. So it's best not to think about it, you know, in terms of millions or billions or what have you, it's, it's a question of necessity. Um, this is the number that the IPC tells us, and, and that's the number we aim, we aim for. And, and another part to think about here is that um, the IPCC working group three also gives us a failing grade on our current progress to reduce emissions. So what that means is that you know these models are based on on our you know you know our globe doing a good job of reducing, and, and we haven't proven time after time that we're doing that. So this ten billion uh, tons of carbon a year by twenty fifty that we need to achieve with carbon removal is pretty likely to go up because it's not going to be matched by the the reductions that we need to we need to do um, to hit our climate goals. So, I mean, not to sound too gloom, doom and gloom here, but um, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, it's it's about it's about trying to mitigate against the worst impacts of climate change, and the billion tons is what we need. So, Will, uh, can I just get you to 
clarify something for us quickly for the listeners, because I think it's confusing to me and a lot of people. So when we talk about net zero by 2050, we're talking about you're still going to be admitting some carbon by 2050, but you're going to offset that by a certain amount of carbon uh, uh, capture and storage or by planting trees or whatever to get us to something called net. But you're talking about something else. You're saying the IPCC actually says we have to go even beyond that. We have to actually start pulling down even more carbon through geoengineering or through something like you're talking about. Is that what you're saying, that there's three pieces to this pie? Or, or can you just clarify that maybe, Mike, or Will? Because I think it's confusing to the listeners. When people talk about net zero, they a lot of people think actual zero. But mm-hmm. you still have the UK telling us that they're going to be pumping oil and gas out of the North Sea in 2050. Mm-hmm. But they're going to offset yep. that through this net business. So can you just clarify that a bit for our listeners? Yeah, David, this is like super confusing <laughs> to everybody. And I'll tell you how I think about it, because I had to get there myself on, you know, how this should work or, or how, I, how I have my own mental model for it. And I think of it in terms of basically uh, cure and treatment, right? So to me, we're emitting today around, depending on how exactly you count it, but between you know, sort of 45 and 50 billion tons a year of CO2, right? That's how much we put up there in terms of, you know, really a couple of major things that we do. Fossil fuels is a big, big one. Um, Land use change is a big one. So sort of like, you know, bulldozing a forest, for example, Um, or, uh, uh, you know, or, or sort of, you know, a lot of the built environment stuff. So things like making cement. So there's, there's a lot of these kinds of activities that emit this carbon. And that's sort of, what we have to cure. So we essentially have to take that down as low as we can possibly take it with emissions reductions. Now, when we talk about emissions reductions, there's a couple of really big levers that we have for emissions reductions. One of them is you can simply emit less. Um, So for example, if I replace a coal-fired power plant with a wind farm, then I'm emitting a lot less. And that's an emissions reduction. You can kind of think of that like a cure, like I've cured that emission source, right? It's gone forever now because now we just have a wind farm. We have to maintain that wind farm, but ultimately I don't have to do anything else. I just do that. I've replaced the power and now I'm good to go. Um, another one is uh, point source capture or CCS. Um, CCS is the act of capturing emissions as they come out of a smokestack and uh, storing that carbon somewhere underground or, or you know wherever it gets stored permanently. That is also an emissions reduction, right? I've cured that emissions source. It's no longer emitting. And so that's a a good thing. So that's sort of the cure piece of it. And we have to reduce, you know, most of the models say reduce from around 50 to about five by 2050. And that's where your net zero comes from is five, five emitted, essentially five gigatons or five billion tons emitted. Now, What we then have to do is we have to remove, and that's what I call treatment, because you have to remove that every year, right? This is no longer something where we just sort of cure that emission source. We have to treat now the earth by removing uh, carbon from the atmosphere. So we need to remove that five because that's what gets us to net zero. And that's done through removals, like what we're talking about here today, where we're actually taking carbon out of the air uh, that's already there. And then on top of that, which is what Will's really talking about, is the other five, which is removing legacy emissions from the, um, from, the, uh, uh, from, from the world as well. 
And so essentially what you get is you get a total of 10 that has to be removed in order to treat the earth uh, of, of its climate problem fundamentally. Uh, and that's my mental model for it. I mean, the, the model that carbon engineering's used in the past that I really like as well is this idea of the bathtub, right? Where we're sort of right now, we've got the tap on, the bathtub is filling, you know, maybe it's even overflowing, right? In terms of, you know, we're filling up the, the atmosphere with CO2. And, um, and, and I know Will used a different bathtub analogy earlier. This is a different bathtub analogy. So my, my apologies <laughs> for that. But we're filling this bathtub and emissions reduction is all about turning off the tap, right? But then you still got all this stuff in the bathtub. So then you have to sort of pull the plug at a certain point, right? And you can have a certain amount of flow out of your, out of your tap if you've got the plug pulled, right? And you, won't, and you won't overflow the tub. So it's sort of, you know, it's both uh, in the long term. But ideally by 2050, we're not talking anymore about offsets. Uh, you know, you can emit this. And then if you don't emit that much, then I can buy it the amount you didn't emit. Or we're not talking about uh, kind of uh, emissions reductions at that point. We're purely talking at that point about renewables. So that's probably the best explanation I've heard in a while. So thank you so much for that. So net gets us down to 5 billion tons a year. Mm -hmm. And that's basically all you can squeeze, all the juice you can squeeze out of the lemon, theoretically. And then you folks come along and other carbon capture and storage type technologies, get rid of that five and even an additional five to actually start reducing the amount of carbon in the in the atmosphere. Thanks. Thanks for that summary. Uh, yeah. Now, so Dave, Dave just just terminology, just very briefly on this carbon capture and storage usually re relates to emissions reductions because it's all about capturing it out of a point source and carbon right. dioxide removal or CDR is relates to taking it out of the air that, you know, reducing the concentration that's already in the air, which is what we're talking about. here. But you're storing it in ocean in the oceans, though, right? That's right. Yeah. Or usually CDR or carbon dioxide removal includes a storage component of it. Um, but because it's not, I mean, it's, it, this is how the nomenclature kind of has evolved, but usually yeah. when we talk about carbon capture and storage, it's carbon capture from a point source of emission. Okay. Um, whereas CDR or carbon dioxide removal is permanently removing it from the atmosphere, which includes the storage component for sure. Right. Okay. So I'll flip it back to Don. Thanks for that explanation. Uh, back to you, Will, for a second. Uh, so our understanding that you're carbon re removal process also restores some of the damage climate change has already caused uh, in ocean ecosystems. So that, that's, uh, that's a nice uh, side benefit for sure. Can you explain how the restoration actually works? And I know this has to do with the anti-acid uh, that, that you put in there, but can you again explain that to our listeners, um, how that process works? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, this is a really important piece of what we're doing here uh it's it's in it, a lot of the times it, it's the focus of a lot of our discussion is the ocean restoration piece so to to really understand it uh we have to go back uh about 200 years or or more before the industrial revolution right i mean we've been emitting co2 into the atmosphere for all that time and about a third of those emissions have ended up in our oceans and, and when that carbon dioxide combines with the water in the ocean, it becomes a weak acid called carbonic acid. And that's how we've ended up with oceans that are about 30 to 40% more acidic than they used to be before this process all began. So we're in this kind of harmful state right now, chemically, um, in the oceans. It's, it's, it's a massive problem. It's global. Um, and there's a lot of impact. And, and I'll get to that. So... As you alluded to in your question, what we propose to do is add an antacid. 
And in the most simplest terms, that is going to make the ocean slightly more basic. Uh, and, and, you know, so really what we're doing here is, is directly countering the ongoing acidification of our oceans. Um, now, uh, you know, the antacid, as I said, makes the ocean less acidic. There, there's a lot of winners from that process. Um, a lot of organisms in the ocean like to make their shells out of calcite, uh, which is calcium carbonate. Uh, and as oceans have continued to get more acidic, they become more corrosive and those creatures cannot build their calcium carbonate shells or not build them as strong as they once were able to. And, you know, it also happens that a lot of those creatures are really important to us too. So we're talking about crustaceans here, uh, including lobsters. We're talking about mollusks, which includes clams, many other shellfish, and it includes coral reefs, which are massively important ecosystems uh, all around the globe. Um, it, it didn't occur to me, even as an oceanographer, until you go to a tropical place, um, how critical places with, with coral reef ecosystems, how immensely important those ecosystems are to the livelihoods of, of the people, not to mention the actual ocean, the ocean's health, um, sort of not only regionally, regionally, but globally. So that is the critical restoration piece that that we're that we're talking about here is is reducing or countering that ongoing acidification that has left our oceans in in frankly a very harmful state and certainly in some places uh in the world this acidification is is a, is a serious problem so that that um that restoration ocean restoration is um is not trivial and you know it may not be as easy to put into numbers like carbon removal and gigatons, but, um, but you know, there's ongoing research and, and published research that has shown that this, this addition of antacid does lead to uh, better growth of, of coral reef ecosystems. And the research that we're partnering with right now at the University of Miami is, you know, at this moment testing uh, coral reefs and trying to see if, if adding alkalinity to um, a tank of corals can make them more resilient to the temperature stresses that are they're currently, you know, being exposed to. So, so can we make coral reefs more resilient by adding alkalinity to the ocean um, in, in those particular locations, which really could help, you know, at least slow down or, or maybe even, you know, make a big dent in, in this sort of coral bleaching issue that, that has really become a big deal. Mike, can you tell us a little bit of how about your purifying mine waste to get to this non-toxic ant acid and what are the benefits associated with the purification process? Uh, absolutely. So we need, as Will said, an awful lot of this antacid. And it's really important that the antacid has a couple of different characteristics. One of those characteristics oh. is that it's very, very pure. Um, antacid gets used in you know, a lot of standard processing activities that end up in the ocean. So it's actually very well understood and in a pure form, it's a very well understood um, process to put this into the ocean in order to neutralize acidic waste, like wastewater, like, like municipal wastewater, for example. Um, but the, uh, so there's a, there's a lot of well-known ways to produce this antacid in a way that is clean, pure, safe. Um, but one of the things that is harder to do is to do it in a way that has a very minimal carbon footprint. Uh, as it stands today, you know, there's a, you know, hundreds of millions of tons a year of 
of antacid like what we use is produced uh, around the world. However, almost all of it is produced with a carbon footprint that would mean if we used it, we wouldn't actually take any carbon out of the air on a net basis. We would actually add carbon to the air because of the emissions of, of that production process. And so what we're working on right now is a way of producing this very pure, mild form of antacid that we use uh, in a zero carbon way. And, you know, a lot of the things that produce carbon in various different uh, ways uh, are related to, you know, new activities, new mining, stuff like that. In our process, we use waste uh, because it actually has a much lower carbon footprint. It's already ground up. It's already ready to go. And it's really just piles of gravel at the end of the day is, is how you can kind of think of it. Uh, the process we use then purifies that. We uh, pull out the metals uh, that we need in order to produce this antacid. Um, we purify out all the stuff that we don't need. And we run it through a process that uh, uses electricity to split it into this uh, form of antacid. Uh, there's two real sort of interesting things that come out of that. The first one is that whatever's in the rock already that's left over from the mining activities uh, that is purified out can be extracted in the purification process. So for example, in a lot of the type of rock we use, there's residual nickel and cobalt which are really nice for producing batteries. And obviously uh, kind of, you know, it's not too much of a leap to think that if we really reduce the amount of oil that we use around the world in order to hit our climate goals, we're gonna need an awful lot more batteries. And so really kind of that nickel and cobalt is, is a really helpful metal to have as we move into a clean transition. And then the second thing it produces because of the electrochemical process is it produces hydrogen. And hydrogen is really useful in terms of those emissions reductions as well as a clean fuel that can replace fossil fuels in a lot of different applications, as well as a really important chemical feedstock for things like clean steel. And so producing that hydrogen and those battery metals also enable us to bring down the costs of the process and in, in doing that, allow us to radically scale up how much antacid we can create in order to make a bigger impact on the climate crisis. Now, just a follow-up question, Mike. Uh, how much renewable fuel could be generated from your carbon removal uh, process, do you think? It's a fair bit. So right now, when you look at it, if we were to, just I mean, as an example, you know, looking at the growth curves for the hydrogen market over the next um, 20 or 30 years, my math on our system is that if we were removing a billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, we we're producing that much antacid with our system, we would be at about 16% of the global hydrogen market. So it, it's a it's not so much that like I'm producing more hydrogen than the world needs by, by any stretch of the imagination. It's still, we're not flooding that market, but we are creating uh, a, a significant amount of value and a significant amount of, of hydrogen. Planetary is currently selling carbon credits. Can you tell us a little bit about how this works and who purchased these, these credits? Yeah, so carbon credits, are, it's a really kind of complicated and uh, interesting kind of market. Um, carbon credits worldwide were worth, you know, they're worth on the order of 250 to $300 billion a year right now, um, which I think surprises a lot of people, like that the carbon credit market is worth that much. They're split up into a wide, wide variety of different sort of 
jurisdictions for, you know, uh, regulatory credits where governments are buying them or taxes are being created against carbon or, you know, markets are created through regulation uh, and, and caps on, on emissions and things like that. And what's called the voluntary market, which is really the individuals or um, companies who are buying carbon credits voluntarily in order to reduce their own footprint. So you can kind of think of that like, hey, I took a flight and Air Canada offered me uh, to offset my flight and bring it down to zero. You know, that's sort of a voluntary carbon credit. And that's kind of how those work. So right now, uh, permanent carbon removal, like what we're talking about, is really an emerging market. You know, there's probably about 10,000 tons a year of, C of, of permanent engineered carbon removal um, that is delivered in the world uh, every year. So it's, it's a really small market, and especially for a market that has to grow up to, you know, doing 10 billion uh, tons a year by, you know, 28 years from now is, is sort of like an interesting space to be in. So what we're seeing right now is that a lot of the people buying credits in this space are what we call catalytic capital. And so these are groups like Shopify, uh, you know, major, major Canadian company that's, that's really taken a leadership position in this, Stripe, uh, you know, Swiss Re, um, a number of these kinds of companies who have made commitments to purchase ahead of supply in order to help to scale the market at very high prices uh, for that carbon in an attempt to use their capital to bring up the scale and bring down the costs. So right now, it's, it's really sort of that voluntary space for, for our type of carbon credit. In the future, we're going to see a wider market, both on the voluntary side as well as on the regulatory side. And in general, my expectation is that by 2035, uh, most of that market will be regulatory. A lot of it will be driven by government incentives, government regulations, or even direct government purchases. And we're starting to see that happen now. Uh, winning the XPRIZE uh, uh, really gives you the ability to um, undertake a number of demonstration projects to prove your technology. I understand that you have three separate projects uh, that are being planned or implemented. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the, those plans? Yeah, so, you know, the demonstration projects we have on the go are uh, obviously critical to scaling up this technology and getting us to market as quickly as possible. The projects are really split between the two sides of our business. So like I said, we have uh, our alkalinity production business. We actually call that our green business. And then we have our ocean business, which is what we call our blue business. And on the blue business side, uh, we have three sites that we're working with right now. Um, these are supervised research systems that are piloting up uh, the addition of alkalinity. Uh, one of them is is Halifax Harbor and Bedford Basin. That's a major one that we're working on with Dal right now to scale up and scale out for carbon removal, um, showing ecological safety, uh, showing uh, the effectiveness of the process. And in the process, ideally retiring or, or essentially removing uh, a certain amount of carbon um, through the research process. Then we've got a process on the Southwest of the UK. Um, that process, uh, is doing similar things. It's it's um, being monitored by uh, Plymouth Marine Labs as an independent third party. Uh, and then we're doing the experimentation, as Will mentioned, at uh, University of Miami and in the Miami region. So that's something that we're working on as well. Um, in terms of our mining projects, we have uh, our most major project is, is based in Quebec right now. 
that is uh, scaling up at the moment. We're working primarily on improving the efficiency of our electrochemical process there and uh, with an aim to scale up at a uh, disused mine site in Quebec. And there's another one in the Maritimes that we haven't talked a lot about, so I won't tell you exactly where it is. And then finally, there's a customer in Brazil that is scaling up now and is interested in using our electrochemical process in their own operations. So the company is currently enrolled in uh, Creative Destruction Labs Ocean Cohort. Can you explain the importance of this association and working with this uh, organization for the company? Yeah, CDL has been amazing, uh, just incredible as a uh, from a whole host of different angles. Uh, I think one of the ways that it's been really interesting is that, that it's helped to refine a lot of our thinking about strategy of the business and to um, build out a, um, a, a really, I think, a cogent strategy that is simplified from where we uh, originally started. Uh, the second thing is that it has allowed us to build out a network in uh, the Atlantic Canada region and uh, talk to people uh, that we wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, and that's been really, really interesting. I think that when you're thinking about a technology like ours, the scale ambitions that we have and the type of work that we're doing, uh, it's really critical for us to involve as much of the community as possible. And we want to be able to have those conversations early and often. And we want to be listening to a community. And, and CDL is a big Atlantic Canada cross-sectional community that's been really interesting to engage with. Uh, and then finally, just on the funding side, uh, you know, getting introductions and talking to people who are interested in funding the business and being part of the journey uh, has been also a, a critical part of the CDL journey. Uh, what is the timetable for the company to be uh, able to fully commercialize its technology? And, and and maybe a supplementary to that, how big a business could this be for planetary technologies? Do you have any kind of hope in your plans about what the size of the business could be? We've got pretty big ambitions, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> around the size of the business. Uh, when we talk about participating in an industry that, like Will said, could be you know, sort of three times the volume of the current oil industry, uh, there's a lot of room for growth in there. And it's still an area that is pretty nascent uh, when you look at it. I, I've remarked in the past that one of the interesting things about permanent CDR is that, and, and carbon dioxide removal CDR, uh, is that right now the ways to do it, right, the pathways are synonymous with certain companies. And so, you know, if you think about we're, we're at this stage right now where it's like, you know, I don't know who invented the potato chip, but like Lay's just invented the potato chip and there's no other competitors because nobody else is really working on potato chips. So it's it's and maybe that's a terrible analogy, but like at the end of the day, it's a very nascent industry. And so and and it's one that when we look forward uh, at the requirements that the world has of this industry, uh, it's going to be incredibly large. And so our goal right now is is a gigaton. That's kind of the number that we point ourselves at. It's sort of, you know, five to 10% of the problem or five to five to 10% of the industry. And uh, I think that having that ambition is actually really, really important um, for a couple of reasons. One of them is, you know, if you're going to participate in a highly risky, very early industry, you want to make sure that you know the juice is worth the squeeze at the end of the day um but secondly 
I think, and in, in maybe more importantly, is that that's the scale that is required to make an impact on the climate. Um, this is one of these things where we don't have time for the uh, for us to really be. Uh, we have to be cautious from a safety perspective, but we have to be ambitious in terms of how we scale, and we have to have the urgency behind us to know that this is an urgent problem for us to solve. And so that's that's you know to me, if we don't focus ourselves on that, we're going to be in trouble. And I guess the final point is. If we focus ourselves on that high of a scale, it helps to drive our design decisions as well. Uh, we don't want to generate a process that can't scale to that level. And so when we look at our R&D and we look at the way we focus things, we do a lot of work around that. We think about waste, for example. If you produce waste in a small scale process, that's probably okay, right? Like, you know, buried in the corner and you're probably all right. If you produce waste in a process that's doing a gigaton, well, then you have to have a pretty strong strategy about how you're managing that waste at the end of the day. And so the processes we build are zero waste processes or internally recycled processes where we're trying to be very circular in terms of how we make sure that we, we don't have anything that we have to manage at gigaton scale. Now, just a, a quick follow up. I need, what, what is your timetable for commercialization? What, in the best case scenario, when, when do you start cashing in? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we've already cashed in, right? Like we've already got yeah. customers for our carbon credits. They've pre-purchased. Right. Um, you know, the, probably the relevant question is when do you start actually right. uh, fulfilling those contracts, right? So like when do we start right. actually taking carbon out of the air? And the answer to that question is, you know, this fall. Um, so we'll be uh, okay. doing very controlled, very small scale, but actual removals um, over the course of this fall at our pilot sites. And uh, our goal is to start to retire credits this year. Mike, you've mentioned safety several times in our conversation today. Uh, and we did want to ask you about challenges and you've told us about some of those. But it seems to me when you're talking about something on a planetary scale here and you are talking about a very massive thing, um, what are the safety concerns? Like when you're trying, when you're tinkering with you know, billions and, and potentially gigatons of, of something, that, you know, what, 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 what are your concerns relative to safety? Yeah, so I think any time, like literally any time we do anything, we have to be concerned with safety when it comes to anything that touches the natural world. And from my perspective, we're going out there and we're trying to do something here that is restorative um, to, to the earth. You don't want to go into that with the same attitude that created the problem, right? Like we've sort of got, you know, our co-founders kind of, uh, Greg is is fond of saying the world has been, you know, embarking on a 200-year unrestrained dumping experiment. Let's see how much CO2 we can put in the air. Let's just like, let's put it all up there and see what happens. You know, kind of YOLO the whole thing. And um and really, that isn't the same approach that we want to take here. We do want to make sure that as we go forward with a restor uh, restorative process, we take a different approach. Having said that, we have a lot of science behind us. Um, and there's a lot of history of the kind of process that we're doing. So the stuff that we're using is uh, considered safe, uh, non in government parlance, it's non-deleterious. At the, uh, at the levels that we plan to add. Uh, as Will said, one of our biggest challenges is actually measuring this stuff. 
the oceans are vast. They contain an awful lot of carbon already. Uh, the tiny amount that we would add, even at massive scale, becomes very difficult to measure. Just as an example, and this is kind of like a, a little contrived, but just to try to get sort of a sense of this, uh, the, the, if you wanted to be able to detect this stuff universally across the entire ocean, you would essentially have to add 37 billion tons of it all at once. And so detectability is our biggest, is probably one of our biggest challenges and measurement is one of our biggest challenges. And we're really focused on safety because we, this hasn't been done before and it hasn't been done at scale. And so we want to make sure that we plumb that to the absolute depths that we possibly can. So we're, we're, you know, really confident that at least as we scale up slowly and carefully, um, this is going to be safe uh, and it's going to be on balance more positive than negative. But at the same time, we don't want to approach it flippantly or, you know, anything like that. And we want to make sure that we are measuring as we go because it is a new process. Just a quick follow-up. Uh, is your technology patentable? Like, uh, are you concerned that others might come in and say, hey, that looks good, we'll do the same thing or slightly different version of the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I, like I say, I think there's going to be, um, we're going to pave a trail here and I'm sure there's going to be people who follow us. And that's, you know, how it goes. We've got, um, I think now 11 patents on various different parts of the process. Um, some of it's patentable, some of it's not. Some of it's stuff that we're contributing to the global commons. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that one of the goals that I had going into this business to create this business was to add the ocean as a viable, you know, strategy for dealing with the climate crisis. And, uh, so if we do have people come and join us, I think that'd be great. You know, it's a big pie, right? There's a lot of space out there and there's a lot of work we can do here together. And there's going to be a lot of opportunity for everybody to make money. So I'm, I'm a little less concerned with, com with competition. What I get concerned about is, you know, looking at the cost of, you know, really doing the right things for the climate. I, I don't want us to lose our way or our will along the way. And I think that's what I really get concerned about as we go into it. We were going to ask you about how confident you are that the technology will work as intended. I don't think that that's the right question now. I think that the question is, what is the big nut that you have to crack to uh, demonstrate the, the technology work? What is the big thing in your demonstration projects that will, you know, get you to the other side? So the, the really very biggest thing that we care about in this instance is uh, what's called MRV or monitoring, reporting and verification. And what that really means in very simple terms is can we give somebody confidence that we have in fact removed carbon from the air? And that's what we're selling, right? So what we're selling here is we're selling the fact that we have removed carbon from the air. It's not something that you can touch. It's not something that we can hand you. You can't go to Walmart and buy it off the shelf and take it home. It really is a fairly ephemeral product from that perspective. And so there has to be trust in the fact that it has actually happened and in order for the money to, to change hands. So that's the biggest thing we care about right now. Will's working on that really hard. You guys can get into a seven or eight hour conversation about, you know, how exactly <laughs> you measure carbon captured into the, into the ocean if you really want to. But at the end of the day, I think that's the biggest thing. The second thing that we really get concerned about is our supply of antacid. And how do we create a global supply at massive scale of zero carbon antacid uh, that's at the purity level that we want? 
Um, there's different pathways. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. We've got our way that we've talked about at the mine side, but you know, we're looking for a portfolio of different supply arrangements that we can use um, in order to move as quickly as we can in this and, and partnerships along the way as well. So the last question we have here, Mike, relates to this issue of scale. So how much capital do you think you're going to need to really take this to market or to take it to market at scale? So you're, you said you're rolling it out in a small way. Uh, even this year, but but to get to the scale where you're doing what you really want to accomplish, you know how much how much capital are we talking about here? This isn't small. Like it really is not small capital. When you look at, um, well, when we look at our process, the two components of it, the mine site process is, you know, it's a mining process. It's large capital, hundreds of millions to billions of dollars of capital per site. Uh, in, at full implementation uh, in order to produce, you know, millions and millions of tons of this antacid, right? So that's sort of the scale you're looking at in terms of capital deployed. On our ocean process, the capital is much more modest. Um, you know, we need, we need capital to do our sensing work to make sure that this is, you know, well monitored and things like that. But the capital is fairly minimal in terms of, of that, that side of the process. And so... But, but but we still have to scale up and we have to do, you know, sort of a gradual scale up as we've been talking about here. So there's capital required in order to support that journey as well. And so, you know, it it's on a global scale. If we get to gigatons of scale, like we're talking, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars deployed. Right. Like, again, two to three times the size of the current current oil industry. That's a multi trillion dollar industry. Right. So no, just a. Just a quick really follow up there. Big. Is that all you or is that are you assuming no. the mining companies will be partnering and other other players along the way? Yeah. I mean, I think when you think about the whole problem, right, like it's 10 gigatons a year is the whole problem. That's, you know, we're talking trillions of dollars across multiple different pathways, many different companies, a lot of different people participating. For us, when I say hundreds of billions of dollars, when when we want to get to our one gigaton, uh, that'll be funded by us, by mining partners, by, you know, uh, all kinds of different sources, for sure. Well, uh, Will and Mike, we'd like to thank you both for joining us on the Insights Podcast to provide an overview of your exciting work, and we wish you every success uh, going forward. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.